Welcome back to Christo.art and part two of a study in burnt orange. Um, you know, just hang on one sec. No offense to these musicians, but I gotta change the intro music back to bongos. Okay, welcome to part two of A Study in Burnt Orange. In this episode, we're going to find out who uh, knitted this image, what title she gave it, and exactly why I think it's a significant work of art. Along the way, we're also going to run into the likes of Heraclitus, Albertus Magnus, and the Inquisition. Well, technically, it's the Roman Inquisition. Don't worry, I'm not going to torture you with history or philosophy, and this episode isn't going to make your head explode. More importantly, nothing and nobody's going to get burnt. Except for maybe that annoying orange color. Really? Um, yeah, wait. Somebody actually does get burnt. Oh, well. I guess you can't have an Inquisition without a human marshmallow. So, you ready for this? Let's light this one up. So, this is another one of those pieces I would say, who the hell would want this in their living room? To me, it seems like the kind of art you would buy at Pier 1 or something. It's decorative. It just has a feeling of like a 60s or no a 70s decorative piece that would have hung in somebody's room who likes that color but it's a color I just can't take and yet it has a depth to it that doesn't necessarily draw me in but it beckons like a question, like saying, okay, so what do you think? What do you think you're seeing? What are you, what is this bringing up in you? Because this is like a mirror of some aspect of my psyche. I mean, I can't help it. I'm a Jungian and I see some aspects of my unconscious in there. Uh, an unpleasant aspect, obviously, since uh, it's a color that I don't like. So let's take a look at the nameplate here and see who did this and what it says about it. Rosemary Chocol, born in 1952. Schwerte, I'm not sure what Schwerte means. Jeez, I, you know, I really have to get on the ball with my German. All right, so Schwerte is just the town she was born in, and it's about 90 kilometers northeast of Cologne. But let's be clear about this. I really don't like reading the name of the artist, the title, or any of the information they put up on the wall next to the work, at least not until I've had a chance to look at the work for myself. And that's not because I'm a snob or I'm trying to be different. The fact is, I just want to see the art and make my own judgments before I read anything about it or the artist. It's not that I'm opposed to having all of that written information. 
I just think it makes it way more difficult for you to form your own opinion. And for that reason alone, it makes sense to read that stuff only after I've looked at the art. Now, obviously, that's not even possible with really famous stuff. Stuff like the Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's David. I mean, you can't avoid knowing all sorts of things about them before you ever see them in person. But whatever you've read or heard about a work, it's all just a story. A story that tends to influence how you and I might think about what we're seeing. And just like propaganda, not all of that story or information is helpful. What I especially don't like about it is the fact that it can override or drown out your intuition. So if you're looking to strengthen your intuition and your powers of observation, that story can really get in the way. To give you a simple analogy, think about a blind taste testing of wines or beers or any kind of food you can buy in a store. If you know the brand and the price, it tends to influence how you think about what you're tasting. Then all of that thinking can override what your palate and your taste buds are actually telling you. But if you don't get to see which brand it is and what the price is until after you've decided which one tastes best, uh, you know, you get the idea. And speaking of not knowing, why do you think you keep running into that frustratingly enigmatic work of art that, just like Elvis, keeps popping up everywhere? You know the one I mean. It's called Untitled. Ooh la la. I mean, have you ever stood in front of some abstract painting that the artist decided to leave untitled? Do you remember how you felt after reading that on the little placard? Were you more intrigued by the work? <laughs> no. Or were you more frustrated by that oxymoron of a title? Maybe you were even a little annoyed by that stubborn refusal of the artist to give you any kind of a hint as to what the work might be about. God damn it, God damn it, God damn it, God Well, the intuitive truth of the matter is that the artist, consciously or not, is giving you a golden opportunity to have your own opinion about the work without some lame-ass title getting in your way. Aha! Uh-huh. Okay, you want to know something weird? Yeah! That's something I never, ever understood before. And I mean never. Wow. You just have to realize that your intuition understands the work perfectly. Woo. It may be lost for words, but it's not lost. And it don't need no stinking title. It's only your logical mind that wants one. It needs something to grab onto. What the hell is this? So the next time you run into that piece, untitled, just remember that. Holy smokes. Untitled. Wow. All right, now it's time to find out the title of this piece and see what else the artist and the curators want us to know about it. And this is called Wasser. Yo, yo, wait, wait. I didn't say beer. I said water. Huh, huh? was done in 2004. It's wool, wood, and canvas. And it was acquired, apparently, looks like in 2005. And it won some sort of Wolfgang Hahn Prize in 2004, whatever that means. 
Well, I've subsequently learned that this Wolfgang Hanpreis thingy involves one under large, as Tony Soprano would say, with all those hundred thousand euros going towards buying the piece in question. Which I guess means that the artist got some unknown piece of that action, and the gallery who represents her probably got a taste. I mean, they got their commission. So what I find most interesting about that prize is that I want to know just what the judges were thinking about the piece. I mean, what do I care about her 100,000 euros? I want to know what the judges saw that made them choose it over whatever other work they were looking at. And I'm really wondering if they saw the same things in it that I did. More importantly, did they have any interesting insights that aren't strictly academic or art-speak jargony? Anything straightforward that could really contribute to a deeper appreciation of the work? (laughs) The only thing I could find on the subject was two short paragraphs on the museum website, a couple of earth-tony sentences in German that vaguely hinted one of my own observations, but are about as exciting as that burnt orange color itself. But Rosemary Tuckle, obviously this is, shall I say, a more feminine piece, uh, more gentle, naturally, than, than Yan Pei Ming. But I'm not sure, sure to what end, although, for goodness sakes, I mean, fabric artists, um, forget the term for that, but... It has a gentleness to it. It has a depth of color, too, once you get used to standing under these lights. You can see blues in it, even though it's still just one burnt orange color. I would suspect that the the way the, the yarns and the threads of the yarn, the fibers just do that with the light and give you the impression of or give you um, a reflection of different shades, different colors. So I'll have to think about this piece. Okay, so I have thought about this piece and about that interesting mixture and depth of color you can only find by looking at it for a while. And those thoughts finally led me to remember that very moving experience I described in part one of this episode, when I discovered for myself the real secret to Caravaggio's genius. Just as a reminder, I was once able to get up close and personal with Caravaggio's work at a very special exhibit in Rome, where I discovered a depth and variety of color in his shadows that's normally impossible to see, let alone appreciate. On the one hand, you can't see it in reproductions, that seems obvious, but you can't even see it in person, unless you get as close to his paintings as he did with his brushes. And of course, normally, you can only get about as close to them as you can to the Mona Lisa. Hey, back off. Hey, stay back. So looking at this burnt orange blanket on the wall, it led me to Caravaggio. How cool is that? But that's the kind of thing that happens when you follow your intuition. It takes you to places you couldn't possibly predict. And more often than not, maybe even exclusively, those are the places that really, really 
move you. I don't know if you're the kind of person that doesn't really care to know anything about intuition, but whether or not you consider yourself intuitive, if you've only ever imagined intuition to be a kind of ESP or an ability to predict the future, you'd be missing the whole point. Huh? I mean, if that's what intuition really was, we could all get awfully rich. And that's because we all have it. Intuition, that is. All we'd ever have to do is to visit the track and bet on the ponies every now and then. But you see, no matter how rich we'd become, we could never buy the experience of feeling moved, which is the real reward of intuition. So, intuition still gets a really bad rap. And that's not because people don't have it. It's because so very few people understand it, even intuitives. I just, I just, it's all complicated. Well, there's a reason for that. But I'm not going to get into that here. Let's just say it's an integral aspect of a book I've been working on for the last nine years. When will you make an end? And one of the reasons I'm writing that book is because I myself, I've learned what intuition is, and I want to pass that along. And I've yet to come across a definition of intuition that really does it justice. I mean, not even Carl Jung's written definition of intuition really helps. No way. And that's because intuition just doesn't translate well into words. The good news, though, is that you don't really need any definition of it. Because just like those untitled artworks, you can learn how to tune into it. And that's one half of my real purpose in launching this podcast. I want to help you to tune into your own intuition. And I'm here to tell you that looking at art, it's one of the best exercises I know for getting on that wavelength and strengthening your innate, if not latent, intuition. For now, here's something fundamental you need to know about intuition. You'll find that when you're looking at art, once you arrive at any of those visual discoveries your intuition can lead you to, especially those moving revelations that do a whole lot more for you than just make you gasp and surprise and wonder and delight, well, you'll never be able to remember exactly how you got there, the logical, factual steps you took. And that's because they disappear from memory almost immediately. You see, the intuitive path really is one of breadcrumbs, and I don't mean the digital kind. It's more like Hansel and Gretel's famous breadcrumb trail, the one that got eaten by birds. Trying to retrace the steps that you took to a moving experience is mostly futile. Your intuition is way too quick, and its traces are too ephemeral to map out or even record. So forget about trying to recreate any moving experience you've had in your life. All you can do is to nurture your intuition, because you can trust that before you know it, your intuition will get you someplace even better. And that's the truth. 
But let me tell you a few things I do still remember, not for the sake of documenting them, but just to illustrate how your intuition actually works, how it builds a chain of associations, a sequence of breadcrumbs that eventually lead you to places and experiences that, for lack of a better description, feed your soul and give you wings. Yeah, 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 I know, it sounds cheesy, but trust me, your intuition is anything but. So, once I was able to see that unexpected mixture of greens and blues and reds and yellows emanating from that annoying burnt orange, I was pretty impressed. But it didn't immediately remind me of Caravaggio. That actually came much later. I only remember that at first it reminded me of what it's like to look at moving water. And I swear to you, that wasn't because of the title she gave the piece. My German is still so bad that even when I can recognize some easy vocabulary words, like Wasser, for instance, those words don't instantly translate into the correct English thought between my ears. To give you an example, I still sometimes embarrass myself at the market when the butcher asks me for his ten euros and I hand over seven. And that's because after all these years of living in Germany, Zehn still sounds too much like seven to me and not enough like ten. What's embarrassing, though, is that the guy takes in those seven euro and he keeps his hand out, waiting for me to come across with the other three. And I can't even describe the look he gives me. Oops. So, oddly enough, I'd have to say that it was probably my intuition that understood this piece as water. Because as I've said before, your intuition understands things long before your logical mind does. Alright, so let me explain why and how you can see moving water in this piece. I'm an expat living in the German city of Cologne, so I spend a lot of time doing what plenty of people living here normally do, which is to walk along the Rhine River, mostly on the left bank, the western side. It has a very long promenade, and it's a great place to think or people watch or just get out of the house and out of my head especially after I've been writing all morning. So on those walks, you just can't help being reminded that there's so much history in this town, going all the way back to and beyond the Romans, who gave it its name, Colonia. But you know, there's even more history in that river, since it flows through so many more historic cities and towns on its way from the Alps to the North Sea. And just to give you an example... Jan Hus, a super significant medieval theologian, he was burned alive as a heretic in 1415. Yikes! And then to prevent any sort of veneration of his ashes, the careful and pious church fathers swept up all those ashes and they dumped them in the Rhine. in the German city of Konstanz, which is way upstream near the Swiss border. More locally, even, it's known that plenty of women were condemned as witches and drowned in the Rhine, right here in Cologne, and probably somewhere right along that nice promenade. In fact, I sometimes wonder about the location of those executions, since I probably pass by it all the time. But more often lately, 
I've just been trying to concentrate on the here and now visuals of the water itself. I mean, if you look meditatively at any body of water, what you see is the unceasing play of light and shadow that the currents and waves just naturally create on the surface, something you could call sun on water. And that's actually something that medieval alchemists were deeply interested in. And Cologne certainly had its share of alchemists. Albertus Magnus, the 13th century theologian, being just one of the more famous ones. So seeing that constant flow of water in the Rhine, the very same river those alchemists gazed at and wondered about, was easy enough to find myself thinking of Heraclitus. Huh? Well, Heraclitus was just the Greek philosopher who famously said that you can't step into the same river twice. And that's just one of his typically paradoxical statements. But it's one that your logical mind might not have much difficulty accepting. Except you just don't need your logic to agree with it. You just need your eyes. And you can see how true it is. And that's because the visual patterns on the surface of the water change from microsecond to microsecond. And if you look at it long enough, that's exactly what happens to the surface of this burnt orange work of art. So I can totally appreciate that this might be how Rosemarie Trockel's knitted piece on the wall got its name. Oh, yeah. Of course, she may have just been thinking that those curly cues of yarn reminded her of waves, just the way they reminded me of fusilli, that pasta shape from my youth that I talked about in part one. But there's no need to know what the artist's reasoning was or what she was thinking. Your intuition doesn't care. If you look at the piece long enough, those nooks and crannies of yarn, the shadows, will eventually yield a richness and mixture of colors that almost rival Caravaggio. And so, that's what happened. Slow, patient-looking transformed what to me was an annoying burnt orange color into something beautifully alive with various shades of reds and blues and yellows and greens, just the way the flowing waters of the Rhine create an infinitely changing pattern of lights and darks on the surface. That's what I remember. And that's nothing short of an alchemical transformation. It's just that here, in the museum, instead of that piece on the wall moving the way water does, it must be the viewer's subtle movements that create the optical phenomenon of ever-changing colors. And that was my first big discovery, and the only one I was able to take away from looking at the work itself. Now, I'd have to say that, as interesting as that was, it still didn't give me the sense that this piece was terribly impressive. Interesting? Yes. Great art? Well, as far as I was concerned, the jury was still out on that. But then I made one more amazing discovery about this piece that really put it over the top, and it knocked my socks off. In fact, it even made me change my mind and want to hang this thing on my own wall. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. So what's that discovery? Well, I'm going to tell you all about it in part three of this episode. Oh, boy. I realized this was only supposed to be a two-part episode, but... You know, when your intuition gets going, you just have to run with it. Actually, you just have to get out of its way and let it flow. As long as you're interested in it and pay it some attention, it'll take you where it wants you to go, and it will eventually rock your world. (laughs) 
With intuition, you have to give up any illusion of control. Otherwise, it won't take you anywhere. It'll just keep rolling on by without you. So stick with me. And be sure to visit the website for the show notes. You'll find transcripts, links, and a few surprises all related to art and to intuition. That's Christo.art, K-R-I-S-T-O dot A-R-T forward slash podcast. So, until next time, thanks for listening, and ciao a tutti! <laughs>